Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Think of all the true crime stories you've watched or read. The image of a dogged or even sometimes fumbling detective usually lies at the center. But today, like almost everything else, technology comes into play. Since the mid-80s, DNA technology has begun to transform the search for both guilt and innocence. Suddenly, cold cases like the Golden State Killer are solvable dozens and dozens of years later. DNA databases are growing as are privacy fears about their misuse. Dedicated cold case detectives, both professional and amateur, are evolving a new profession. The idea of no statute of limitations on murder has always been a fundamental tenet of our criminal justice system. But now, with DNA's ability to solve so many other types of crimes, we see the system changing. Will the long arm of justice be forever? That's what my guest, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Edward Hume, has written about in his new book, The Forever Witness. Hume is an author and journalist whose 15 previous books include Burned, Mississippi Mud, and No Matter How Loud I Shout, It Is My Pleasure to welcome Edward Hume back to this program to talk about The Forever Witness, how DNA and genealogy solved a cold case double murder. Ed, always great to have you back. It is great to be back, Jeff. How are you? Good. One of the things that's so remarkable about this story, I think that would surprise a lot of people, is how the dawning of the whole DNA business in law enforcement really started out as something among hobbyists, among volunteers, and, and citizen scientists. Talk about that first. Yeah, well, this new technology, and it's a mouthful, but it's called genetic genealogy, uh, uh, is incredibly powerful, but unlike other advances in forensics, it's exactly as you said, it came from hobbyists and citizen scientists and basically our, our shared quest for understanding our origins, our roots, roots mania, they used to call it. Um, going back to the old uh, TV miniseries by the uh, roots. Um, but basically these new DNA tests that you can now buy online for 69 bucks on, you know, on sale uh, are incredibly powerful. They tell you who you are related to, even distantly, people you've never heard of who share your DNA and your heritage, what part of the world you come from, and uh, many other things that uh, can be traced through our genes. And this hobby started out just as recreational and then it turned into something else a few people got really good at uh, doing this combination of dna analysis and documentary research you know digging through marriage and birth and death records and old phone books and even social media posts and putting together these incredibly rich stories about our family trees and our origins and they started using it to help adopted children find their birth parents. That's something that has been shrouded in secrecy. But this technology, this new form of DNA analysis could penetrate those secrets and help people reunite with their true past, their, their birth families. And the same was done with children who had been abandoned. Even amnesiacs were getting their stories back, their identities known through through this amazing process that's very different than the kind of DNA analysis law enforcement has traditionally used, which is a DNA fingerprint. All it is is a unique identifier. It doesn't tell you anything about uh, a person's origin story. 
Um, and so it was just one step away from figuring out the identity of a abandoned child to figuring out the identity of DNA left behind at a crime scene. And that was really the jumping off point for, for the forever witness, literally the witness that lasts forever. It never fades. It never forgets. It doesn't lie. Um, it's, it, uh, it's just waiting for us to use to answer these long unsolved mysteries. One of the things that's particularly unique, and I think something people didn't think about even in the early days of using it for genealogy, is that there's a crowdsourcing component of it, that the more people participate, the more people that put their spit in the vial and that are willing to go into these databases, or in some cases forced to go into the database, the larger that crowd becomes, the easier it is on the genealogy side, but also the larger the database becomes potentially on the law enforcement side. That's You nailed it. I mean, that's it's so fascinating because the original DNA fingerprinting that the police still use as their go-to um, is incredibly powerful, but it has a big blind spot. It can't find people who aren't in the database. Right? You, you had to have been arrested for something uh, and had your fingerprints taken and your DNA fingerprints taken and put into the system. And then you are findable if your DNA turns up at a crime scene. But what happens to these thousands of unsolved murders and hundreds of thousands of unsolved violent crimes um, that don't have a a match in that database and that's where this crowdsourcing that you're talking about this genetic genealogy these family tree databases come into play because you can be identified even if you're not in the database because your relatives may be in the database uh, and, and suddenly well i mean the murder i write about in the forever witness happened 35 years ago it was unsolvable until <laughs> until it was solvable uh, because of the reach of these crowdsourced recreational consumer databases, which now have over 40 million Americans in them and many more millions from around the world. One of the things that, that's unique about this is that there's the database that law enforcement has, the database that, that the FBI may have. But there's also these private databases, and at the moment, it's never the twain shall meet, but it may not stay that way for long. Well, they, yeah, yeah, they are. Right now, the uh, FBI, the Justice Department, and the state crime labs that together pooled their resources to create this uh, system called CODIS, and it's, it is the DNA fingerprint system. Um, and that is complete controlled by um, uh, by the government uh, or by governments, uh, and it's used uh, you know to solve over a, a half a million cases since the database went live in the 1990s. It's incredibly powerful. Um, these private databases come into play when the existing system fails to find a killer or. Uh, uh, another violent criminal whose DNA may be found in a crime scene, often from sex crimes. Uh, and so uh, this is kind of the genetic genealogy is the case of last resort. Um, and it originally was, was done by, by a volunteer 
a cadre of, of citizen scientists who figured out how to do this. Um, and now it's expanding a little bit. The, the hobbyist databases have been acquired by big companies and uh, particularly the prices have gone up. Um, uh, uh, and now there's talk of, you know, what's next? Will the government begin building its own um, uh, ancestry DNA database or will there be expansion of the field is the public ready to to, to come fully on board and say yo I, I want my dna used for this purpose even though it could lead to this uh, one of my family members albeit a distant one being targeted as a as a criminal um those kind of questions are still being being posed and and, and uh, have yet to be answered but there's no doubt that this technology is so powerful uh in the right hands it can be a force for tremendous good um misused it could be a force for not such good things one of the other ways that it's used and we hear these stories almost as much as we hear the stories about the killers like the the one you the one you talk about in the forever witness is the other side of the coin the way dna has been used to exonerate those who even in some cases have been found guilty of crimes Yes, that's that. So think about it as uh, three ages of DNA in, in in the criminal justice system. And the first age was in the 1980s, um, and it was used just like a fingerprint would be used. You have a suspect, um, you compare their fingerprints, let's say their actual finger fingerprints, uh, to fingerprints found at a crime scene, and you say, "Aha, this confirms we've got the right guy." Or they don't match, and you say, "Ooh." We've got the wrong guy. Um, that's how DNA fingerprinting works, and in exactly the same way, except it's much more exacting, and it's it's a code, so it's also computer searchable, um, versus the you know uh, an imprint of our actual fingerprints. So it's an incredibly powerful tool for exoneration as well as for making sure you have the right person uh, in prison, uh, and thousands of people have been. Um, released from uh, and exonerated from after being convicted and imprisoned uh, because of this original form of of the of, uh, law enforcement, you know, the first age of DNA, let's call it that. The second age is simply taking those DNA fingerprints and building a database out of them as searchable. So now not just a confirmation tool, it's a search tool. Uh, and now we have this third age of DNA where we're using familial DNA and we're not using DNA fingerprints. Now we're using the actual coding sequences of our DNA that, that determines our eye color and our hair color and everything that we inherit from our parents. Um, uh, and because that is so much more discerning, it's so much more powerful than just the DNA fingerprint technology that has been used in the past this uh, creates this new capability to find anyone and um, that is uh, poses again as a, when it's in the right hands if it's properly regulated and used for, for, for as a force for good uh, it is unbelievably good uh, but there's also always a risk that if you're putting your DNA out there in the world um, somebody who has less than um, uh, noble motives could make use of it in ways that we uh, might not approve of. Do 
talk a little bit about the story in The Forever Witness, which takes place roughly around the mid-80s, late to mid-80s, really, when this technology really didn't exist quite yet and, and, and how it evolved for the technology to enter the story all those many years later. Yeah, yeah. So young couple from Vancouver Island, Canada, Tenny Van Kallenborg and Jay Cook were on an overnight trip to Seattle by ferry and, and car. Um, they were driving together. They'd been dating five months. She was 18 and he was 20. Um, and they were running an errand for Jay's dad's business, picking up some parts for his uh, heating repair and and servicing company on Vancouver Island. And the only parts available were in Seattle. And Jay volunteered to go do it. And he invited Tanya to come along. It'll be fun. We'll pick up the stuff for my dad. And then we'll hang out in the big city, go do a little shopping, sightseeing, you know. And it was their first road trip together. So it was it was both a favor for dad and a uh, and kind of a little bit of a romantic getaway, I suppose. Um, but they disappeared, you know, somewhere along the route through the Olympic Peninsula and down to the ferry that would take them to Seattle. They vanished and were missing for uh, almost a week. Um, and, you know, the police at first said, hey, you know, two young people out on a romantic getaway. Don't worry about it. They'll be back. And this was an age before cell phones, before pervasive surveillance cans, before facial recognition. All the tools we kind of take for granted in the law enforcement world uh, didn't exist then. Um, although Tanya always found a way to call home, even then. Um, she'd find a payphone or a friendly store owner and say, hey, I'm here, I'm safe, or we're running late. And when she didn't do that, her family knew. Something was wrong, and they searched for her. Tanya's dad is like a figure out of a Greek tragedy. It's just, his story really resonated with me as a parent, and uh, and the lengths he went to try and find his daughter are truly remarkable, but unsuccessful. Um, and the bodies were found in very mysterious ways. Tanya was shot in the head and left by the side of a road. Um, in Washington State in a forest not far from the Canadian border. And Jay was found 60 miles away, um, beaten and strangled, killed in very different ways. And the police had trouble figuring out just what happened and and why and where. Uh, and all the evidence they ever recovered, there was no witnesses, no viable suspects. They had a palm print on the van that they thought belonged to the killer and DNA left behind traces of the killer's DNA uh, and that led them nowhere for 30 years until this new age of DNA dawned and uh, a woman named CC Moore, uh, a self-taught <laughs> genetic detective who's, who's was trained and worked as an actress and uh, musical theater performer uh, and uh, did TV commercials, but her passion was genealogy, and she taught herself how to do this, and she solved this crime, and now has solved more cold cases than anyone on the planet. Talk a little bit about how this was considered, particularly by law enforcement, almost as junk science originally. Well, uh, years before uh, this case and, and the other big case that uh, the public has heard about that was solved in this way, the Golden State Killer case, um, years before that, um, 
see Seymour and the and the um, DNA analytics company Parabon Nanolabs separately approached law enforcement uh, about using this different form of DNA to solve crimes and to do everything from predicting the um, appearance of uh, a, a suspect based on their DNA. That's what uh, Parabon proposed to do. And then um, C.C. Moore pr- proposed of, uh, to them that, you know, there's more than just identifying who your great, great grandmother is with this technology. I can help you find killers. And they kind of laughed it off and saying, really, you know, we have this million dollar, these million, multi-million dollar crime labs and this extensive DNA database. And you're going to tell us what to do with your $69 <laughs> consumer <laughs> DNA test. Give me a break. Um, they had this DNA fingerprint, which is a tool of exclusion. You know, it, it if you have somebody's DNA fingerprint, it's only going to match one person on the planet. Um, and the DNA CC Moore was working with and that Parabon was working with uh, is a tool of inclusion. It shows everybody who shares patterns in the same DNA, DNA profile. That's how you build a family tree. And to the forensics guys, that didn't seem to make sense. And they didn't really understand what could be done with that information once you have a database that you can search for the matching patterns that show you someone's family tree, because you can always find the one person on that tree you need once you have it built. Um, and, and that was just so outside their frame of reference, how, how forensics people were trained to think that they, you know, they disdained it as, as not of any value to them. And of course, <laughs> history is, uh, you know, being what it is, um, they were shown to have really missed the missed the boat on that because it's a hugely powerful forensic technology when used the way CC Moore does. And she and Parabon combined forces to work on these cases, and they create a whole package of family tree information and kind of a DNA mugshot with the predicted appearance of a killer can be based upon their trace DNA. It's really quite a remarkable uh, achievement um, uh, on both ends of the, the science and uh, uh, the art of, of researching a family tree and together has shown itself to be able to do things no other forensic uh, approach has succeeded in doing. Given how powerful and effective it is, both in catching criminals and in exonerating those who may not be guilty, do you imagine someday other crimes being changed so that they too can be prosecuted 30, 40, 50 years after they happen? Well, not every crime leaves DNA behind. So some things just aren't going to be able to be solved that way. I'll give you an example. The last book I wrote about was... um, about a, a wrongful conviction in an arson and murder case. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, when something burns, there's no DNA left uh, behind the sample. So, and there's other crimes in which, you know, property crimes in which um, the likelihood of finding usable DNA uh, really isn't, isn't a thing. Now, can that change? I mean, are, are we nearing a point where you can just get some kind of sniffer and find all the DNA left behind from people just walking through a room uh, and be able to do something with that? Um, that Maybe that day will come. And then it's a matter of practicality and expense and manpower, whether you can use this 
new approach to solve those kinds of crimes. Right now, it's not feasible, but it doesn't mean it couldn't happen. And of course, there's the danger, you know, we think of it now in terms of of credit cards and numbers, but the danger of identity theft could even uh, involve DNA at some point. Well, some of these um, DNA databases, these private um, consumer databases have been hacked um, and where people have created fake profiles in order to get into these systems and access other people's um, DNA. Because the whole point of these databases is that you share them with one another so you can build each build your family trees, right? I mean, it doesn't work if, if all these profiles are kept private. Um, so yeah, some uh, the potential for that data being accessed and misused exists. And of course, there's laws in place that... Uh, protect us from misuse of our genetic information. But, um, you know, it's also something very hard to police, as we know from the hacks of our financial databases in the past. Well, I mean, <laughs> it's, I, I could see our genetic profiles having a lot of value to uh, uh, people, everyone from potential blackmailers to uh, uh, insurance companies who don't want to insure people who pose a high risk and might be able to rule them out through if they could get a little extra data on their uh, uh, client's genetic proclivities. So has that happened? Uh, Not that we know of, but is there a potential that we need to be aware of? Absolutely. Talk a little bit about the evolution of law enforcement's view of this, because that's also something part of the forever witness, the way in which law enforcement has has thought about and has grown in its thinking about DNA evidence. Well, it's been it's been revolutionary. Um, I mean, 1987, when Jay and Tanya vanished, um, DNA wasn't a thing yet. It had, you know, they saved it in the hope and put it in deep freeze in hope the hopes that it could be used someday but and they were right about that um but that they had not yet arrived and when it did the original dna fingerprinting database opened and there was a wave of cold cases solved um that hadn't been solved before but then they hit a wall if uh if someone who had committed a terrible crime was never caught for that offense or anything else they were invisible to the system and nobody really thought that was a barrier that could be surmounted which is why the solution had to come from outside law enforcement and the forensics community from these these folks who just wanted to help adopted kids find their birth parents or um, founding children learn their identities you know and and out of that sort of noble effort um the idea emerged that, hey, you know, all of these unsolved cold cases could be solved this way too. So it took it took that sort of um, outside the box, outside the forensic world thinking to to jumpstart this. But now that you know the value of it is is clear is very clear, and police agencies have been lining up trying to to get their cases uh, solved in in this new way as well. So there's certainly a, a, an embrace of it um, as, as opposed to opposition. It's just that they couldn't see it until somebody showed them it could be done. It's also given rise to almost a whole new 
part of being a detective, this idea of the cold case detective, the person whose job it is just to work on these cold cases. Yeah, and uh, Jim Scharf, who's kind of the, one of the main characters in, in The Forever Witness, is one of the best cold case detectives in the, in the country. He, he's been so successful. And that's before genetic genealogy came along. He was very creative and novel approaches. He would go over all those old files and, and find the things that had been overlooked. He'd find new witnesses and new leads. Um, and he solved uh, quite a few of these old cases without genetic genealogy, but he still had this, you know, I want, you know, over 60 cases in his jurisdiction, Snohomish County, which is, you know, a much smaller uh, jurisdiction north of Seattle, uh, smaller than Seattle, I mean. And uh, he he did amazing work, and he had a had a knack for putting together these puzzles. And he had really heard about genetic genealogy and what it could do in some of these other types of inquiries, um, particularly uh, ab abducted children uh, who didn't know who they were, who were t taken as very young, and helping them find their identities. Uh, he saw the application of. Uh, uh, of, of that in criminal cases years before um, these the Golden State Killer and these other cases finally were broken open that way and he was trying to find the right people to work with and um, and get that kind of uh, inquiry going and when it finally dawned when this new age of DNA investigation dawned he postponed his retirement so he could continue working um, cases using this new technology it was so eager to to finally give answers to uh, to the people who had this terrible loss decades ago um, in the past and and really had given up on the idea they'd know what happened to their loved ones and now finally he was going to be able to to bring them um, some kind of uh, answers after all and that that was uh, you know uh, you've never seen uh, a person more uh, thrilled to to find out that there was someone out there who could help him do this uh, and uh, you know he was he's a remarkable person and now he has finally has retired but he's doing so much volunteer work uh, now working on his old cases it's like he still hasn't retired <laughs> And finally, what have you seen in terms of how defense lawyers are trying to defend against this? Well, that's interesting because it really hasn't changed for them. Um, the way the process works is these genetic genealogy investigations are treated like an investigative lead. So I'll give you the example. C.C. Moore put together the family tree for the person who killed... Tanya and Jay. And when she finally pieced that together and reversed engineered and found where the where the branch of the family tree in question ended uh, with the suspect, there was um, two, uh, yeah, obviously there's a mother and father, uh, and they had the right combination of DNA uh, to tell Cece that their child had to be the killer. Well, they had four children, but in their case, they had three daughters and one son. And we knew from the DNA that the killer had to be a male. So she was able to give 
one name to, as opposed to a list of four possible names to the police and say, here's your guy. But then they had to prove it in a way that would be acceptable evidence in court. So what they did was they followed their suspect around and got something he threw away, a coffee cup, um, and recovered it and took his DNA from it and did the old, what we'll call the old fashioned DNA mm -hmm. fingerprinting to make, make sure that they had the right person. And once they had that in hand and there was a match, then he was charged with the crime. And so the main evidence in court was the old school DNA fingerprinting. Um, and so they've been litigating that for 30 years. So it was really nothing new there for the defense to deal with. Although they did um, have the added factor of genetic genealogy having to be explained to the jury, not as proof of guilt, but to show how it was that they targeted this person who had never been a suspect before. Edward Hume, his book is The Forever Witness, How DNA and Genealogy Solved a Cold Case Double Murder. Ed, I thank you so much for spending time with us. My pleasure, Jeff. It's always great talking with you. Thank you.